Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, Mark's gospel is where we're going to be. And my hope is that we're not there too long. However, I do believe that there's something here for us that I want to work through with you. So Mark 16, we're in the home stretch. Fathers, we open scripture now. I'm asking that you would give us understanding. God, for people who have doubts or questions that are present in the back of their minds, God, I pray today you'd address them. Lord Jesus, for people who come here today hurting, and it's on the forefront of their mind, that life is hard and it's overwhelming. Jesus, I pray that this moment, that this passage, that this historic event would speak to that pain, to that suffering that they face. Father, our hearts are open, and even in a warm room, we sit here believing that you want to speak to us, and that's why we're gathered. And so we're asking that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. But very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You probably remember that Jesus had promised both those who had followed him as his friends, as well as those who had questioned and opposed him, that the proof of his true identity would come, it would one day be clear to all, and the moment in time where it would be clear is when Jesus would rise from the dead. In fact, he'd say it three times in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, where he would specifically, implicitly say, clearly say, that the Son of Man would rise from the dead. In Matthew's gospel, it also records for you some interaction, I should say, in John's gospel, where Jesus goes into the temple opposing the religious system, and when he does, driving out these religious leaders with a whip for turning a house of prayer into a den of thieves, they said, by what authority do you do this? And how can you demonstrate with a miracle or sign that you have the kind of authority to do this? And Jesus told them, you might remember, that if you destroy this temple, in three days I will build it back again. I will raise it up is the term that he used. And it says in the text in John's gospel, the second chapter, that he spoke that, speaking of his body. The religious leaders had come to Pilate demanding that Jesus be put to death, saying that they found that he was claiming to be king and that he was threatening to destroy the temple. But by the next morning, 
They've sent to Pilate a delegation, Matthew's gospel tells us, saying, please send soldiers to guard the tomb because they knew what Jesus meant by that statement, Matthew's gospel says. They knew that he was speaking of his body. They said that one, the deceiver, he promised his followers that he would rise from the dead. Lest someone come and try to fool all the people and mislead them, please do it. Send someone there to guard the tomb. Jesus had said it very clearly and people understood it. Hey, listen, for many of us, when it comes to the resurrection, we know its significance. We even can tell you why it's significance. This is, this is the telling someone why it happened. We understand why the resurrection happened. Jesus had told us that it's going to prove that I am who I claim to be. But our question for this morning is how many of us possess an equal amount of clarity and confidence that it happened? And can we communicate our reasons for believing that with confidence. I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me at all. Why it happened is incredibly important. We need to be clear on this. And the Bible makes it so very clear, and I've heard it beautifully summarized this way, that the resurrection of Jesus, it secures for us forgiveness from the past. It proves that Jesus' substitute and perfect sacrifice was acceptable by God that Jesus would emerge from a grave. It proves forgiveness that we have it from the past, but it also proves that we have power for the present because you remember as Jesus died and breathed his last, stating that it was finished, that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom because the spirit of God would no longer be separated from the people of God. Where now the Bible says that you house the Holy Spirit and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now alive in you, working in your life, transforming you. It's not just that the resurrection proves that we have forgiveness for the past, but it also makes a way for us to have power for the present. That God is no longer separated from his people, but he's moving powerfully within us and through us. But it also gives you a third thing. It gives you also hope for the future. In fact, your Bible says it this way, that Jesus was the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. The idea, the imagery is of springtime. When the first blossom appears, we know that it's a sign that spring is coming and that there's more to come. It's the first of many blossoms. It's the first sign of new life, of springtime. And Jesus would be the promise to us, seeing him alive, promises us that we too will live on the other side of the grave. Yes, many of us know the why, the why of the resurrection, why it happened. But how many of us possess an equal amount of clarity and confidence that it actually happened? You see, I I believe that our faith is not without evidence. In fact, I love how someone else had said it. They said the resurrection of Jesus, it's rooted in history, grounded in scripture, and confirmed in experience. Or here's how Luke wrote it. Luke, the gospel writer who wrote the gospel of Luke, would later write a second book to the person that is believed to have been Luke's master because Luke was a physician and his master sent him out to collect information about the life of Jesus. The second book Luke would write is the book of Acts and he would say, oh most excellent Theophilus, the former account I sent to you of all that Jesus began to do and teach but now he's sending him the book of Acts which is the continuation of what God continued to do and teach by his spirit, now no longer through the body of Jesus, but through the body of believers, the body of Christ themselves. But here's what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He says that Jesus presented himself alive after the grave through many infallible proofs. It can be translated unmistakable, irrefutable evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
So what we are going to do for the next couple of minutes, and it won't be too long, is that like good detectives, we will ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the resurrection. Because Mark is recording these facts here, you might notice, giving specific details so that if someone who's reading this in the first century geographically lived in the neighborhood, they could go ask individuals that he names by name here, did you see this? They could go to the tomb and step into it, and it says, look to the right to the place where they laid him. He's giving all of these details to make sure that you're clear on how you could fact check. But for us removed by 2,000 years, how would we do that? Well, strap on your inner nerd because we're going to look at that very question. The first thing would be considering who. If we're going to ask the question of can we trust a resurrection, we first need to consider the who. Who reported it? If you're taking notes, it's worth writing down. Consider who reported it. And Mark's account of the resurrection, it tells us early Sunday morning, there's these three women who arrive with expensive spices with them to anoint the body of Jesus. And there's this odd redundancy that I pointed out to you last week in Mark's gospel that three times in just nine verses that account for the death, then the burial, then the resurrection of Jesus, these three women's names are reiterated. That they're told to us again and again to make sure that you as the, as the first century reader are aware that these women saw Jesus' death, knew where he was buried, and saw him alive after the grave. It's a way for Mark to attach a footnote to the text to say, go fact check it with them. But these women would not be the only ones to see Jesus alive from the dead. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us Jesus next would appear to his disciples. And then if you follow what Paul would write about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, he would say that he appeared to many people, including over 500 people in one shebang, in one gathering, many of whom he says some have gone already to be with the Lord, but many of whom he said by the time he was writing Acts 15, or 1 Corinthians 15 that they were still alive for you to go to them and fact check the details with them. Now think about it. Where is it recorded or, or who's recording the resurrection of Jesus for us? What's well, the disciples who abandoned Jesus? And then they have this crazy transformation from fear leaving Jesus to faith standing boldly for him, preaching even to the very ones who had demanded Jesus' crucifixion and condemned him to die, even going to the religious leaders themselves in the temple and being told by them to shut up and then threatened by them. And their response was, we will obey God rather than man. Put us in jail, stone us, you can kill us, but we will not stop telling our message that Jesus is alive. Well, then it happened. Followers of Jesus began to be murdered in droves. History has long since called them martyrs. The the word, the term, it means to witness with one's blood. If you're a martyr, there's no no way to vote that's more profound. There's no way to witness, to attest to something that holds more weight than to give your own life for that witness and testimony. People like Levi, the tax man, who'd become known as Matthew, the disciple and gospel writer. Matthew's life would end for the cause of Christ in Ethiopia, where according to church tradition, he'd be stabbed to death for not recanting his testimony that Jesus was risen from the dead. Jude, the insurrectionist, wanting to overthrow the government, became a disciple of Jesus who willingly laid his life down when he was shot to death with arrows for not renouncing his faith in a risen Lord. 
From Peter, the man who cowered when a simple question was asked by a young girl about his connection with Jesus, he becomes a man who boldly preached before thousands. Among them were the very people who had crucified Jesus to die. Peter's life came to an end when he was crucified. And church history tells us that he spoke up and said, I'm not worthy to die in the manner of my Lord. And he asked that they turn his cross upside down, and that would be how he would die. From Andrew, the rough-and-tumble fisherman, to Andrew, the disciple and messenger of Jesus Christ, he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Church history tells us he preached to those who guarded that cross while he suffered and died, which took place over two agonizing days. These were common men to begin with, but they were anything but common by the end of their story. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified in Egypt. Some traditions say that he was then sawn into pieces. Thomas, the the doubter, the pessimist, church tradition says he died being a martyr, run through a spear in India. Some reports then say that he was then thrown into a furnace. Bartholomew, or scripture also refers to him as Nathaniel. Historians tell us that he was flayed alive. They peeled the skin off his body, trying to force him to recant on his testimony of a risen Lord. Philip would die by a hangman's noose. John, the son, or James, the the son of Zebedee, beheaded by Herod, that he'd be the first apostle to be martyred. It was was James' brother, John, the son of Zebedee, the short-fused, hot-tempered son of thunder, was boiled in oil and didn't cook, was poisoned but didn't die, and then was banished to the island of Patmos, where he'd write the book of Revelation. He'd later travel to modern-day Turkey, and he would be the last one of the apostles to die and the only one who in the end would die of natural causes roughly 50 years after his brother had passed. And as an old man who could barely walk or see, he was carried from church to church where he would simply say, little children, love one another. I personally, I have such a difficult time ignoring these guys when they're willing to suffer and die for what they claim to be true. And what they claim to be true was the resurrection of Jesus. Why would you not believe their testimony? I mean, think about this. Don't let me lose you here. People don't die for what they know is a lie. People are not tortured to death for what they know is a lie. Now, you might be thinking, but hang on, what about even Muslim terrorists? Does a suicide bomber's willingness to die mean that their belief should be trusted? Well, well, no, not necessarily, because they're willing to die for what they believe to be true. But what if they knew that it was a lie? What if they were, in fact, the ones who started that lie? What if they knew that the Quran, it's it's fiction, and and that Allah doesn't exist, that, that it's a misleading, misguided prophet who's speaking to them, If they knew it was a lie, they would not be taking their own lives for its cause. But listen, please, that's not the case. They're dying for what they believe to be true, what was told to them about something that happened way back in the 7th century. In contrast to that, please don't miss this. The disciples would have known firsthand if the resurrection story was a hoax because it would have been made up by them. They're not believing someone else's testimony from centuries before. No, they were the firsthand eyewitnesses where if it was a lie, they made it up themselves. How could anyone believe that the disciples made up these stories about seeing Jesus alive and then for some of them being flayed alive without admitting that it wasn't true? Because I don't know about you and your life experience, but in mine, 
When I lied, it was always to get out of trouble. It was to get out of bad situations, not to place myself into them. And people have done this throughout the ages. They lied to get out of jail time, to get out of torture and death, not to get tortured and be put to death. Oh, it's so very important. Consider the who, who reported it. But here's the second thing. If we're going to look at the resurrection with a critical eye, the second thing very quickly is what? Consider what preserved their reports for us. Consider what preserved their report for us. Historians tell us about the disciples' testimony of Jesus being alive, but the Bible itself records those stories in great detail, and there is incredible evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, here's one of the ways that I'm shaving time off this message, is that instead of telling you why I trust the Bible right now, I instead will point you back to, in this week's church email, I'll point you back to a previous message where that was the entirety of the message, all that we talked about as a church, because I think that this is an important thing, but there are incredible reasons why you should believe the report that's preserved in this book. So that's the the what, who, what, here's the when. Consider when this report was being made. Think of this. Consider when they reported that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is obvious. It was in the first century, right? It wasn't three centuries later that people started going around and telling others that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, historians tell us in the first century that there is a massive cultural shift that took place amongst many of the Jews during that period in history. These were things that that these Jewish followers of Jesus had been taught since birth by their parents and by their rabbis that these were keys to their national identity, that these practices were keys to their acceptance into the community. But please don't miss this. They were also the key to their acceptance and forgiveness by God himself. And yet those practices shift and stopped completely. Things like the practice of bringing animal sacrifices to the temple, it stopped. Sacrifices provided just a temporary covering for someone's sin. But for so many Jewish believers in Jesus, they believed that Jesus, the Lamb of God, had come to take away the sin of the world, and they no longer needed to bring an animal sacrifice than to die in their place. It was also their strict adherence to observing the Sabbath shifted and stopped. In fact, early followers of Jesus began to, according to historians, meet on what they called the Lord's Day rather than on Saturdays. On Sabbath, they'd meet on Sundays. They met to celebrate and commemorate the resurrection. That's why they shifted. They believed what Jesus taught about the Sabbath, that it wasn't that man was not made for Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made as a gift and blessing for man. And the way that they chose to celebrate each week as they gathered was they'd gather on a Sunday calling it the Lord's Day because of his resurrection. It was also a third category of things, and that was their dietary restriction and separation from the Gentiles. It stopped. They allowed Gentiles, historians will tell you as well as you find it in the Bible, to begin to eat with them. They began eating a much broader diet, no longer refusing these non-kosher foods. In fact, they would even begin to, as shocking as it was in that cultural moment, to intermarry with Gentiles, believing that God had brought them into a family. Hear me, please. These were a huge part of national identity, but also of how and why they believed they were acceptable to God. For them to just stop doing this is very significant. I mean, think about it this way. If I told you after service that I I was actually the guy who won the lottery, uh, you know, the big multi-billion whatever total it was, and and what I've decided to do with some of my money is I want to secretly 
pay off your mortgage. And so I took care of it just yesterday. Your mortgage is done. You don't owe a penny. Enjoy the house. It's my gift to you. Now, if you believed me and took that at face value and stopped making your payments, then worst case scenario, eventually you'd hate me because it would ruin your credit. It'd, it'd get your house, you'd get evicted from your house, it'd get repossessed by the bank, and then you'd drown your sorrows and hopefully just queso dip. But I mean, it could be a messy situation for you and your family. The stakes are high if it's about you having a temporary shelter over you, a home to call home to live in. But what if you stopped doing things that you believe kept you eternally separated from God? What if the stakes were much higher? Where acceptance and forgiveness in the sight of God was dependent upon you doing these things, but now someone is coming and telling you, no, you no longer need to do those things because Jesus is risen and the people who had seen him with their own eyes were the ones who would be first to no longer do these things that once were their connection to a relationship with God. I'm assuming these people, just like you, would want to feel pretty confident before stopping those payments that they were making, not just to be a part of the culture, but to be near to God himself. Oh, the when matters, but so does the where. That's the fourth thing. The who is who who gave us the report. The, the what is what preserved that report for us. The, the when is in the first century. When did they tell us this report? The where is incredibly important. Where did they give that report? Where did they go to report that Jesus was risen? I mean, it's well documented as a part of history that Christianity was birthed and thrived in Jerusalem beginning in the first century. Now, why does that matter? And maybe I've already bored you or lost you, but, but take a deep breath. Why is this good evidence? Well, because countless hordes of people saw Jesus die, they knew that he was buried. Even many of them would have known where he was buried. And now think about it. The disciples went to those same people who saw it all go down and began to preach to them that they needed to repent and turn to Jesus. Otherwise, they would stand before him on a great day of judgment because he was alive. The where they reported it was incredibly important. I mean, think of it this way. What if this morning I came in here and I started rumors about how Tupac and Biggie were just spotted in Hawaii hanging out together? What if Princess Diana, I, I said also, I, I know that she's alive. I have an insider a bit of information. Kobe Bryant faked his own death. He also is alive. And, and if I continued with the list, at some point, someone would cut me off and tell me, you're terribly insensitive. Like, you're just not a nice person to, to drag people's emotions back into a very vulnerable place by claiming that someone is alive from the dead like that. But the best way for you to shut me up would be for you to take me to their grave, wouldn't it? It'd be for someone to retrieve a body and for them to prove, and now if it's people who've been gone for a while, they'd prove it with DNA that it was, that that in fact was their body. But what if they were only dead for a few days? Taking the body out of a tomb and showing me that, yes, they are still dead was the easiest way to shut a person up. Now, track with me. Both governing authorities in power in the first century in Israel, the, the religious leaders and the Romans, both of them wanted to stomp out the early testimony of Jesus' followers. So what do they need to do then? If the report was being made in Jerusalem, what do they need to do? It's simple, right? They only need to pull out a body. That's all that they needed to do. 
If they just produce a body, the body of Jesus, then the reports that Jesus was alive, they're snuffed out all at once. But why didn't they just bring out a body? Well, the reason they didn't is because they couldn't. Yes, they were motivated to do it, but it was because the body was gone and the tomb was empty. There's a who, there's a what, there's a when, there's a where, but there's a why as well. You see, the why is you and I need to consider why the alternative theories really are not very convincing. All the evidence seems to point to the fact that no one had a body to produce in that moment in time, in that very same place where Jesus died, that no one had an answer and that people were dying, willing to suffer and be tortured to death for their testimony that they saw him alive. And all of the other theories really just don't hold water. They're not convincing. In fact, most secular scholars, they're quick to admit that the tomb must have been empty How else could the Christian movement have ever even got off the ground if the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans had access to the body? They could have stopped the whole thing so easily by just producing a body. So most secular scholars will agree and admit that there was no body available to them. But then their theories they represent are pretty unbelievable from there. You see, some people, their theory, very quickly, I'll I'll give you the five leading ones very quick, and the fifth one I'll spend a bit more time on than these first four, but they would suggest that maybe the resurrection didn't happen because Jesus actually never existed at all. Now, I don't know if you've studied much history, but Jesus' life is accounted for by more than just the Bible. In fact, if you look at a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, the authors Gary Habermas and Michael Okona, they list more than 40 sources which which mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. You have people like Cornelius Tacitus, a historian in the first century, Gaius Suetonus Tranquillus, who wrote the lives of the 12 Caesars and talked of Jesus. Pliny the Younger, he was a Roman governor. About the year 110 AD, he wrote the Emperor Trajan talking about this wretched cult of Jesus' followers who were claiming that he's alive. The Talmud and the Mishnah, these Jewish writings that were the traditions and teachings of rabbis in that era of time also mentioned Jesus, as well as Flavius Josephus has the longest quote about the life of Jesus. So there's no way that he didn't exist. But then the second leading theory is that the resurrection didn't happen because what happened is the women went to the wrong tomb. There was actually an antagonist Greek philosopher who in the second century already began to popularize this, saying, well, you know how frantic women can get, which is really pretty trashy. And you know how they are with directions. This really is from the second century. This was already one of the leading theories. You know how they are with directions. They got confused. They're very frantic. They start crying, reporting that there's no body there and that they thought they saw somebody else, this young man who's telling them that they're alive. And so they have some lost tomb theory where no one remembered. Now think about this. A lost tomb theory would require that the Roman government, that the Jewish religious leaders, both who had great reason to put Jesus to dead, the Jewish religious leaders who then got the Roman government involved in their concern over someone taking the body of Jesus to try to perpetuate a lie that he had risen, even Jesus' own disciples, think of it. All of them were motivated to know where that tomb was. In fact, some of his disciples, as we read in Mark's gospel last week, were the ones who laid him in that tomb. They all would have wanted the body of Jesus. None of them would be so foolish as to forget where that body had been laid. So another option for you, another theory, is that the resurrection didn't happen because the religious leaders stole the body and lost it after the fact. But why would the religious leaders want to steal the body 
And how in the world do you account for them losing it, somehow misplacing it, and starting a religious movement that they were in opposition to, but never even coming out and admitting that they had taken the body? It's mindless and has zero evidence. The other theory is that the resurrection didn't happen because the disciples stole the body and hid it. There's a why and a how for this one too, isn't there? The how is how would these guys, this ragtag group of of people who had one sword amongst the 11 of them that were still around, you might remember, in this story, where you have tax collectors, these are white-collar people, you've got blue-collar people who are used to being seafaring, where they're on the Sea of Galilee fishing. These are not people who are trained military assassins who who would knock these guards out and steal a body. They couldn't have pulled it off. But even if they did, why do that? Because now you're stealing a body so that you're hunted down, persecuted, and have your life taken from you as you're tortured to death. These are not people who stole a body and built an empire where they got rich and famous and kicked back in luxury. You're now accusing these people of instead stealing a body so that they can give their lives, refusing to recant that they had done just that. The leading theory, here it is. It's called the swoon theory. This is the leading theory still today, is that Jesus didn't actually die, he swooned. And if you don't know what swooned means, it means he fainted, he passed out. Yes, he was beaten. Yes, he suffered so much blood loss. Yes, yes, his skin was so badly lacerated, he'd be bleeding out. Some historians talk about people who received the beatings of the flagellum, that you could see their internal organs in different parts because of how ripped up your body would be. That's what Jesus endured. And then a spear through his side, going up and seemingly piercing his heart with blood and water coming out. They take his body down. They place it in a tomb. Jesus wasn't quite dead yet. And three days in a cool dark, damp tomb with no medical assistance and no blood transfusion, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. But all of a sudden, after three days rest, Jesus is feeling good. So good, in fact, from the inside, he breaks the seal that was on the stone to hold the stone in place, pushes the stone away, beats up the guards, leaves them ashamed to hide their secret, and then runs off into obscurity only to remember now as he's pulling his grave clothes off and walking stumbling naked, only to realize just how, how bad his health truly was to where he collapses and dies in the street. And his body ends up probably in Gehenna, the unmarked grave where he's thrown into the trash heap. Picture the scene of Monty Python and the Holy Grail where it's like the bring out your dead in the morning and the guy's like, I'm not quite dead yet. That's the scene that they're believing, that someone then grabs Jesus, wheels him off, and that's where Jesus ends his story in a mass grave. He didn't die, he merely swooned. This is the leading response to the, to the teaching of the resurrection, is a theory like that. Maybe most importantly is the how. Consider how Jesus said you too could conquer death. Consider how Jesus said you too could have life everlasting. His words are recorded in John chapter 11 where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But then he asks, you might remember, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Our story in the Gospel of Mark has led to this moment. The resurrection is as important as the crucifixion. There's great reason to believe that it happened, but do you believe this? You can close a Bible. There's a French novelist and playwright, Thomas Bernhard, 
who is referred to as an unrelenting critic of religion, he said, everything is ridiculous. Here's what he said. Listen, everything is ridiculous if one thinks of death. He's right, isn't he? That if you extract Jesus from your life and your thinking, everything is ridiculous. I mean, if we extract Jesus from the world, what hope is there? What hope is there of things being right again? Because we've always been told that time and technology and education are going to solve the issues in society, and yet here we are. Whereas society evolves and progresses, it simultaneously seems to devolve and, and become more and more chaotic and splintered and fractured and broken. If we extract Jesus from the world, what hope is there of us even finding purpose in life? Where is there any meaning or purpose? I mean, if we, we, if we just simply evolve as a, resort, a result of random chance, th- th- then we progress, we believe, through survival of the fittest. Well, then think about it. Our hearts won't allow us to live lives the way our minds tell us we ought. To live that way feels unhuman. We would even call it inhumane to live that way. Our hearts betray us and betray the narrative that we're meant to believe in our mind that we're just here by random chance and so you have no value, no more value than a single cell organism. And if you're here by random chance, we've evolved only through survival of the fittest. So if you're falling behind, you're gone. We have to move forward. But if we live that way, our very hearts betray us. We call it inhumane. We're no longer human. If we extract Jesus from the world, what hope is there of an afterlife. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that we have been given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Irish writer Thomas More said, Earth has no sorrow, heaven cannot heal. Earth has no sorrow, heaven cannot heal. And I believe to the degree that that future is real to you, it will begin to change everything about how you live in the present. You see, life everlasting is something Jesus promised to his followers, not just as a future promise, but an inheritance that they would begin to experience in that moment. Because to the degree that that future with him is real to you, It will change everything about how you live now in the present. The truth is it can be so overwhelming for us to face suffering, to deal with an illness or disease, or to try to do the right thing, even though it costs us. And and we find it's the most difficult option for us oftentimes. To live with integrity, it's difficult, even if it costs us monetarily. To even face the reality of death head on. These things are so difficult in the human experience because our natural inclination is to assume that this broken life and world and our broken body is our one shot to get happiness. But if Jesus is risen, if our future is both secure and more beautiful than what we've seen in this life, And as one author puts it, the resurrection means that we can look forward with hope to the day that our suffering will be gone. 
You know, this week was a hard week for some in our church. A wonderful man in our church this week had to bury his brother after his brother lost his life after an automobile accident. There's another family in our church who, who had to say goodbye to a very beloved figure in their family, a grandfather who had left a legacy in their family. For two others in our church, they spent a significant amount of time this week in the hospital bracing for explanations and diagnosis to come as the reasons that they found themselves in those places. We can ask ourselves, does the resurrection even matter? We can wonder, is it even important, not just about the future, but about our today? Does it matter today? My friends, the resurrection of Jesus is what has carried the church through the ages, through life's most overwhelming and painful moments again and again and again. Because those difficult moments are so overwhelming because our natural inclination and bent is to assume that this broken life and broken world and my broken body is my only shot at happiness. But if Jesus is risen, that's not true. Our future is both secure and more beautiful than what we've seen in this life. My friends, I don't know what you have faced this week. I don't know what you're up against today. I don't know if you came here with a heart that's full, that's just encouraged in your faith today, or if you came in with a heart that's worn and weary, where you're questioning your faith today, but hear me say that this is not all that there is, that we have a risen Savior, that we have a living hope, and that the pinnacle of the story is what you found here, and that it has an echo of this moment where we find ourselves at the end of the book also with Jesus resurrected, forever in glory. So Jesus, I thank you that you didn't leave us just to ask for a feeling or a hunch that this was right or real. Jesus, that you left us with evidence that you, God, sovereignly orchestrated things so that we could be confident in Jesus' resurrection and confident also that we too will rise to be with him for all of eternity. Father, I thank you that even for us who are here and our hearts are weary and we're worn, that today we pause to remember that there's more, so much more. And we choose today to believe in that future destination and we're asking that it would shift and change our present reality where the things of earth would begin to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, as that old hymn would tell us. Jesus, we thank you for the many infallible proofs that you are alive. Jesus, I thank you for the proofs even represented in this room. It's what we celebrate as a church today in a baptism. We're celebrating transformational work in the lives of people, something that we attest to as your followers. Jesus, that I am not the same, that you have transformed me. Jesus, that we are not the same, that you are transforming us. That the power of the resurrection is at work in each of us, your people. Jesus, we celebrate that today as a church, that you are birthing new life, you are breathing new life into us, eternal life that begins in the here and now. So Jesus, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.